Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. Dr. Nicolantonio is the author of the book called The Salt Fix, and we had him on for episode nine to discuss his findings back then. He now has a new book coming out called Superfuel, which is about what James and Dr. McCullough have researched and discovered about good fats versus bad fats. Dr. Nicolantonio is a doctor of pharmacy, cardiovascular research scientist, and associate editor for the BMJ Open Heart and Nutrition Journals. James, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. It's good to do it again. Yeah. Um, I just first want to apologize to any listeners. I'm going to sound husky and my voice is going to come in and out because I've been losing my voice. So, But you're going to be doing most of the talking today anyway, so I'm not going to disturb people. Um, so yeah, I want to get into your new book that's coming out, uh, I believe, in about a week or 10 days or so from now called Superfuel. Um, and that's all about fats and good fats and bad fats. So I'd first like to ask, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, well, it, actually, my own experience with the ketogenic diet is, is kind of what launched me to, to write the book because I think I was doing a lot of things wrong on keto. Um, and I think a lot of people might be doing the same things wrong in regards to what types of fats they're using. Um, because if, if fats are going to be making up 70 to 80% of your caloric intake, if you don't get those fats right, then the ketogenic diet that you're on is maybe doing more harm than good. And what ended up happening was, is I kind of stalled on my weight loss when I, when I went low carb. So I was low carb for a couple of years. And then I noticed that I was kind of gaining more, more visceral adiposity and I, I hadn't changed my exercise routine. Um, and I was trying to understand what was going on. Like, why wasn't it working any, anymore? And when I started peeling back, um, just added fats in my coffee, um, like heavy cream and butter, I, I lost the weight again. And so I was using too many fat bombs and probably the wrong kinds of fat. Um, not to say that pastured butter and cream are bad. Absolutely not. But the quantities do matter. And replacing some of those types of fats with other types of fats can actually have a dramatic improvement in your overall fat burning. And so that's what really launched me to start researching. Are there actual differences between the fats and bacon and cream and butter versus, let's say, olives and fish oil in regards to fat loss. And that's what this book really exposes. Okay, and yeah, I mean, that's, that is definitely a question that a lot of people who adopt a higher-fat diet or a ketogenic diet are going to be asking, like, what, what kind of fat should I be consuming? Because I need to consume more of these things. So what's going to be healthy for me, as you said, both primarily from a weight loss, which mo I think most people adopt, but then even long-term, what's going to be the most healthy thing for me in the long-term? Um, so... Could you just explain some of the history behind how bad fats entered our food system? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to set the stage in the premise of the book, um, most of your listeners probably understand that, you know, animal fats aren't as bad um, as we used to think they were. Um, but for those who still kind of believe that animal fats are bad for your health and the so-called heart-healthy omega-6 vegetable oils are something you should be consuming, um, this book really reveals the history of why we think that's the case and why it's wrong. And so really the story kind of begins with um, the invention of the cotton gin. And back in the late 1700s, we were able to produce, you know, instead of 600 pounds of cotton per year um, in just within just less than a decade with the invention of the cotton gin, we started producing millions and millions of pounds of cotton. And with 100 pounds of cotton, you get 160 pounds of cotton seed. And so you have all these cotton seeds and you have no use for it. And so Procter and Gamble comes along in the early, you know, 1900s per se, and they start, you know, extracting, well, actually even, even before then, they start, you know, extracting these oils from, from cotton seeds. But you, of course you can't just squeeze a cotton seed and get the oil out. You have to use like multi-million dollar machinery, hexane, solvents, and chemicals to actually even extract these oils. And so what ended up happening is they started using these in candles to light homes. Um, and they were doing well up until um, oil was struck in the mid 1800s. And so they have all this cottonseed oil and everyone's, you know, there's no use for it anymore. And so 
a, a German chemist, actually, um, Wilhelm Norman was his name. He was able to invent what's called partial hydrogenation. He was able to take these vegetable oils and make them into solid fats. And so Procter & Gamble bought basically that technology, that patent, opened up a lab and created Crisco, which was crystallized cottonseed oil. So they took, they had all this cottonseed oil, they didn't have a use for it anymore in the mid 1800s. And they were able to use partial hydrogenation to basically create a fat that looks like animal fat at a fraction of the cost. And so these oils basically were, you know, produced in a way that we've never consumed throughout evolution. Um, they weren't coming from whole foods, they were being highly extracted and now an isolated oil. And they were being basically exploited by Procter & Gamble as a substitute for animal fats that is cheaper, um, that you know, can create better products. I mean, they even used um, their own cooking books and pamphlets with Crisco, which was that, again, that crystallized cottonseed oil and all the recipes and were promoting it to Americans that, hey, mothers cook better cakes and pastries using Crisco. And they were, you know, they were able to basically say whatever they wanted to back in the early 1900s because none, none of that stuff was regulated. And so early on in the United States in the early 1900s, it was integrated into our minds that these vegetable oils are healthy and that animal fats are bad. And Ansel Keys really was the, the launch of animal fats being bad from actually the six country study. Many people know him from the seven country study, but um, the seven country study didn't come out until like the 1980s. His first original publication of the six country study came out in 1953. And basically he drew a graph of six countries showing that as animal fat intake rose, the risk of dying from heart disease increased, but he left out 16 other countries. And a few years later, um, two authors kind of aggregated the 22 countries that were actually available, not just the six. And when they plotted all of them, they showed no relationship with an increase in animal fat. But, you know, the, the, the horse was already out of the barn, so to speak. And Ansel Kesey convinced, you know, Americans that animal fats are bad simply from that six country study. But then also he used the seven country study um, and increases in LDL cholesterol to say it's bad. Now, there was never pr any proof that animal fats were actually bad for us simply based on surrogate markers and poor epidemiological data because vegetable oils do lower LDL. But the problem is they increase the susceptibility of LDL to oxidize. And so now basically studies were buried too. So we're finally pulling out, you know, studies from the basement that were buried, like the Minnesota coronary survey that should have been published 30 years ago that showed, you know, on autopsy, there was an increase in heart attacks when people substituted animal fats with these vegetable oils. And Chris Ramsden, he's been kind of combining um, and gathering new data from the Sydney diet heart trial and conglomerating meta-analyses published within the last five to eight years showing that indeed, when you replace animal fats with these vegetable oils, there is a significant increase in all-cause mortality and death due to heart disease. And so, you know, those studies are just finally coming out within the last decade. And so that's why there's been such a change in the sales and in the winds of, nope, animal fats really aren't that bad. It's really these vegetable oils that are. Yeah. And uh, so it's just fascinating. Again, it's always money, you know, and how to make profits. Unfortunately, someone sees there's an, in, in, a, in a way like an industrial waste product going, well, surely there's a way to monetize this a little bit because we've got so much of the stuff. Um, and I, you've already touched on there then um, that we mainly look at the difference between animal fats and vegetable fats. Um, but you'll have a lot of people out there who um, and you've kind of explained it a little bit already to, to say, but vegetable oils are better than animal fats. But are there some vegetable oils that are better than animal fats? Um, I'd be interested to know. Yeah, um, I think there are some differences in, in, let's say, plant fats like alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, that are found in like greens and nuts and seeds. And let's say long-chain saturated fats um, that are found in like heavy cream and butter. And so isolated oils are never really the way to go. Even flaxseed oil, even though it's very high in the omega-3 ALA, which does, I'll go into some of the differences why ALA may have some advantages over long chain saturated fats. But even like when you extract a highly, a polyunsaturated fat, even if it's you know, highly omega-3 fat, it's not the way to go. So people are very confused about canola oil as well as flaxseed oil and hemp, even hemp seed oil are, are those type of oils healthy because they're higher in 
they'll make a three. But the problem is, is they're, again, very highly saturated in these polyunsaturated fats, which are, you know, multiple double bonds that are very susceptible to oxidation. So you always want to get your plant fats from whole food sources, never extracted oils, even if they're quote unquote cold pressed, um, even cold pressed canola oil has up to 5% of its fats as trans fats. They're already oxidized enough where it's created a trans type of fat. So I just want people to kind of have some type of take home that even though ALA has some benefits, um, you really got to get it from the whole food. And so one of the benefits of, let's say, omega-3 ALA versus long-chain saturated fats is ALA is actually a ketogenic substrate. And so most people understand that MCTs or medium chain triglycerides don't really get um, stored. They get directed to the liver for burning for energy. Well, ALA actually works very similarly. It is also a ketogenic substrate. Um, it, it's beta oxidation or fat burning in the liver is much higher than long chain saturated fats found in heavy cream, um, butter, things like that. And so there is some advantages to eating more and integrating more fats that have more ALA in it versus, let's say, more long-chain saturated fats. There's also the monounsaturated fats like oleic acid, which is high in avocado and olive oil. And those also have certain advantages over the long-chain saturated fats. Um, one of them being that the thermic effect of monounsaturated fats, meaning the amount of energy you burn just to metabolize the oils in avocado or in um, olives is twice that compared to the amount of calories you burn just metabolizing long chain saturated fats. So the thermic effect of oleic acid versus let's say stearic acid is twice that. And so right away you're burning more calories just to metabolize that fat. Very similar to let's say the fiber in almonds. You burn a lot of calories just metabolizing almonds. Same thing with the fats in olives and avocado. You're born, burning more energy simply metabolizing it. And then if you compare the beta oxidation rates or the fat burning rates of oleic acid, again, found in olives, olive oil, avocado versus heavy cream and butter, the beta oxidation rate or fat burning is much higher, meaning that the fats that you consume from butter and cream are more likely to be stored versus consuming fats from olives and avocados. Okay, so again, when you're what you were talking about on a ketogenic diet, when if you're looking to lose weight, the types of fats that you're exposing yourself to do make a big difference. So, eating avos and nuts, you mm -hmm. burn more calories versus having uh, a marbled steak or something. It sounds like a hundred percent, and the, and because you're not storing that energy and you're burning it, you are liberating more energy from that source of food. So your body is already thinking that it, it it has more energy. You're going to be fueled better on those fats because you're not just storing them, you're liberating them for energy. And so that, that, that some people are actually, the studies have shown that people are literally more active when they consume more foods like nuts, um, seeds, avocados, olives, versus things like heavy cream and butter because you are literally not storing the fat as much, you are, you are liberating those calories and burning them more for fuel, and that gives you more energy. And so people assume that you know activity is something that you consciously control, but if fats are liberating more energy and, not, and are not being stored, literally the fats that you eat may actually determine how active you are, and some of the studies actually show that. That's interesting. So if I'm just thinking here when people go on – a say like a carnivore diet and they're eating more fats through the meat but or even on a ketogenic diet and they say that sometimes they have fatigue it could it be that the type of fat that you're exposing yourself to is not energizing your body in a way that you actually need different sources of fat to to give you that energy 100 percent. i mean if you just even look at the genes that are activated by different fats so if you were to cut six grams of fat off a steak and replace that with fish oil. One study showed that within just a few weeks, you lose two pounds of fat and you gain an extra half a pound of muscle. And the reason is, is the long chain marine omega-3s like EPA and DHA found in wild salmon, fish, they activate your fat burning genes, the beta oxidation in your liver. You are literally a better fat burning machine eating more marine omega-3s 
and rather than just, let's say, a purely eating a steak diet. And so if you don't have, if you don't have the omega-3s on board to activate those genes, you absolutely may be just storing a lot more calories that you're eating and you're not, you're not feeling fueled. You don't feel the energy from those calories because they're being placed into your fat cells rather than being released as energy. Okay. And sorry, my voice again. Um, with the ALA, if you could just explain that one again to listeners, um, what kind of sources do they get? Because it sounds like you could use ALA like people think of MCT oils, like the coconut oils. Um, is there a way that we could get more ALA in a healthy way? Yeah. Um, so ALA is, again, the, the plant omega-3 alpha linolenic acid. And those are that type of fat is going to be higher in things like nuts, seeds, green leafy vegetables. Um, and so that's, those are the best sources of that plant you know, omega three. Okay, that's that's uh, that's why always when you see a, a ketogenic dishes that yeah, you got some greens, you got some nuts, and then you know meats and fats. But it sounds like to me then that a mistake that people definitely can do on a ketogenic diet is have too much dairy fat, like overexpose themselves on the dairy side. Um, is that the case there, both from a weight inhibiting weight loss, but also then from an energy point of view that they they might feel a bit more sluggish when they're just trying to consume tons and tons of butter for their fat intake. Exactly. I think a lot of people think of the ketogenic diet right away as being basically butter and bacon. And that's kind of the wrong way to do keto. The right way is to basically grab whole food sources of fats. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, I, I think we should be using pastured butter as a cooking source and we can get into cooking oils and things like that. Um, and I, I think there is some health benefits to pastured butter. You're getting the vitamin K2 that you can't get from a lot of other sources. So I don't want to demonize bacon and butter, but again, bacon is very fatty and the type of fat in bacon is long chain saturated fats. And it, there are better sources of foods that seem to, in clinical studies, um, improve weight loss. So for one example, um, there was one study where heavy cream um, and butter was basically replaced with olive oil. And within just six weeks, the participants lost six pounds of fat simply by changing that in their diet. Now, granted, they were eating about 300 grams of carbohydrate. So that's why you see such a dramatic weight loss within a few weeks of just swapping out um, basically butter and cream for olive oil. But you would still probably see some benefit even if you were on a ketogenic diet. It wouldn't be a six-pound fat loss, but you may lose an additional pound of fat by simply switching those types of fats. So it goes to show you that you can have you know, pretty dramatic changes in your own fat burning just by swapping out certain fats for other fats. And I'm just thinking here what you mentioned earlier about with vegetable oils, we don't want the single oil that's extracted from the whole food. Ideally, it's in the whole food like like a nut oil. Eat the nut versus extracting the oil from the nut. When you mention olive oil, is olive oil the exception to the in this case yeah. here that you, you don't only have to just eat olives. You can safely extract oil from an olive. Yes. So the reason why um, olive oil is different even let's say compared to avocado oil is because extra virgin olive oil is extremely high in polyphenols, preventing the oxidation of that oil, um, even cooking. So most people think that um, smoke point is what you should use in regards to an oil being the best for cooking, the highest smoke point being the best. And actually the studies indicate it's the exact opposite. Um, mainly the high smoke point oils are the most refined, like canola, like grapeseed oil, um, peanut oil, they have very high smoke points, but they oxidize very easily. Whereas extra virgin olive oil has a very low smoke point and extra virgin olive oil even beat out um, coconut oil in regards to oxidation products. And so extra virgin olive oil is probably literally the best oil to cook with because it's so highly concentrated in polyphenols. So it's not even that it's okay to, to take olive oil straight because it's so highly concentrated in polyphenols. The polyphenols are so concentrated, it almost completely prevents any type of oxidation occurring, even when you cook with it. And so it's literally one of the best oils you can cook with, um, even compared to the supersaturated coconut oil. Yeah, that's interesting because 
I mean, I, I, I used to cook with olive oil and then, you know, I came across, no, actually the, the smoke point's so low in olive oil that you're risking it by actually adding it to heat. So only ever add olive oil to food, you know, once you've cooked it so it's cold. But you're saying it is actually safe to cook with olive oil. Um, we're not damaging the olive oil by putting it in a frying pan to cook with. Yeah, it's actually beneficial to cook with olive oil because the polyphenols as you cook will actually soak up into the food that you're cooking it with. And olive oil dramatically reduces advanced glycation end product formation, even potentially heterocyclic amine formation when you cook meat. So if I'm going to be grilling, I will always coat my meat with organic extra virgin olive oil. So yes, it's not only okay to cook with, it's going to enhance the health benefits of your food and prevent harm from occurring when you cook things like meat. Fascinating. So you you actually coat the meats in olive oil and not just put the oil in the pan. It's like yes, you're, I will, yeah. Yes. I will coat the meat with uh, with extra virgin olive oil and then of course I will use, you know, real salt um, because that's just that's I'm the salt guy. Mm-hmm. And what what's kind of cool is when I let's say I do that with pork chops after it's done cooking, you, you have like this nice seal and this nice coating. And I use that salt brine to kind of eat the high ALA foods like spinach. I cannot tolerate spinach unless it is literally soaked in like this salt brine. And so I kind of use the olive oil salty brine mixture to kind of allow me to eat those high ALA foods like, like spinach that I normally probably wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so just coming back to the smoke point in the cooking, because that's so practical for people. What about then people cooking in butter or lard? Is that okay? Yeah, that's completely fine. Um, uh, in fact, I would I, how I would kind of rate the oils would be extra virgin olive oil would be number one, but a close second would be coconut oil and things like butter and things like ghee, lard, tallow. Those animal fats are a close second because they are saturated. There's a little bit of a chance of potential of the cholesterol in the animal fats to oxidize, but not very much because the saturated fats actually help protect the cholesterol from oxidizing. But there is, there is some data with animal foods in general, even before you eat them, like shrimp and things like that that contain cholesterol. And I don't want to demonize dietary cholesterol, but there have been studies measuring the oxidation of cholesterol products in in animal foods. And, you know, just because you're hanging meat for weeks, um, you know, as when you were a carnivore, if you, you would generally eat the, the meat fresh, um, you don't wait two, three weeks for you to hang the meat. So it's nice and tender, which creates a lot of oxidation products. Um, so there is some advantages to, again, the olive oil because it doesn't have cholesterol that could potentially oxidize. Okay. So, I guess the key point here is oxidation. That's what people need to get yeah. to think about, not just smoke point, but actually how susceptible is this fat to oxidizing when it's, when it's exposed to heat. Exactly. Okay. And the same even when it comes to other forms of oil, I think, is that the key point then? It's always mainly about the concept of oxidation, that that's what we're trying to avoid with bad fats because bad fats oxidize more easily. Exactly. So if you have an an oil, uh, especially a high omega-6 or omega-3 oil, when it comes to cooking, those are going to be the worst because they are just more susceptible to oxidation. Even if they have a high smoke point, like canola or grapeseed oil, those are literally the worst oils to cook with. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that brings us in, you know, a lot of people here, they, they may understand some of the terms we're talking about now, but for someone who's listening and just going, whoa, there's some really big words going on around here. Could you just explain to someone what, what does oxidation actually mean? What, what happens there? Yeah, so basically what ends up happening, the reason why the polyunsaturated fats oxidize versus the, the saturated fats don't is because the double bonds are susceptible to what's called basically free radical attack. And so basically what ends up happening is you lose a bond with, with a double bond and you create a free radical. And so you, these fats then become oxidized and they become their own free radicals. So the fats that you're cooking with basically have a free electron. They are now basically pro-oxidants and they can start oxidizing your own internal fat DNA protein. This is what's called advanced lip oxidation end products. Um, many people know about ages or advanced glycation on products, like basically 
the glycation of sugars, either when you cook meat, you form those advanced glycation end products, or you can form them in your body by eating things high in, you know, uh, fructose and you're glycating your cells. You can also oxidize the fats, the lipids, the proteins when you oxidize your own fat, either cooking those fats. And one of the problems with those polyunsaturated fats, again, with, that have double bonds and that are susceptible to that free radical attack is they will oxidize in your own stomach acid. So even if you get a cold pressed, unsaturated fat, let's say like canola oil, the stomach acid is going to oxidize those fats and form what are called lipid hydroperoxides and aldehydes, which again can basically damage the body. They are these reactive type of oxidation products and you absorb them and you damage your own intestinal cells. And the problem with fats, if you get them wrong, even compared to sugar, is they stay in the cell membrane until your cell membranes can turn over or they stay in your own fat cells for years. The half-life of linoleic acid, which is the omega-6 fat that, you know, basically is probably one of the worst fats to consume in an isolated form, which is found in a lot of these seed oils. It has a half-life of about two years in your fat cell. So that's the problem when you eat those pies that are high in these either trans fats or omega-6 fats, or you cook with these fats, they're staying with you, they're saturating your cell membranes, and they're causing disruption. And it's not only your cell membrane, but in the mitochondrial membrane. So these fats are literally damaging you and changing you from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And so that got me thinking, I listened to another interview you did with Dr. Sean Baker, and he, he was talking about as an orthopedic surgeon, cutting into a patient and seeing the different quality of fats too. Um, but when someone goes on a ketogenic diet and they're starting to lose weight, which ten, hopefully is more fat, um, could they get a negative response because they're releasing all of these stored up omega-6s um, that they've had over years? Yeah, I, I think you can. If you don't have enough omega-3s to suppress the inflammation that's going on, not only within the fat cell, um, but also the release of the linoleic acid, which is highly susceptible to oxidation in your body, especially... Um, I mean, just free linoleic acid itself can damage the endothelium and lead to potentially, you know, um, you know, LDL crossing and getting into the blood vessels and causing heart disease. So, yes, there is harm from the release of not only the linoleic acid in your fat stores, but part of why we may even be coming fat is to kind of sequester these persistent organic pollutants. Um, like dioxin and PCBs in the environment, they get stored in our fat cells because our body does not have a good mechanism of eliminating these persistent organic pollutants, hence the term persistent. Our body simply can't really eliminate them. The only way they can actually eliminate those is really um, consuming something that can bind them in the intestine. There's this, uh, when you release, when you're losing weight, so to get back to your question, the linoleic acid, yes, is harmful. So you got to make sure you're upping your omega-3 content when you're losing weight to prevent the damage, but you're also releasing those persistent organic pollutants and you have this type of recirculation, um, this enterohepatic recirculation of the dioxins and the PCBs that you can't get rid of. The way to do that is to either consume some type of whole food fiber, which can literally bind those persistent organic pollutants that are coming in the animal fats, or you can take a medication like cholesterolamine. Um, I'm not giving anyone, you know, dietary advice. I'm just saying that cholesterolamine can literally bind those dioxins, but I would prefer to use whole food fiber. And so, you know, it's, this is part of the, the nuance of, you know, ketogenic diets are great, but I think we also don't want to lose the benefits of certain whole food high fibers that can also prevent the harms of the persistent organic pollutants that we simply, that are coming with your animal fats. There's simply, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, we just, we live in the 21st century and it's just something that, um, we need to think about. And so that's another kind of important reason why I don't want people to fully shun carbohydrates because they have their place as well. Okay. And you're when you're talking about carbohydrates, you have whole foods that contain uh, fiber to help with the binding process that you, you were talking about. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard anyone really discussing that factor that we're exposed to these environmental pollutants, even through our food chain. And when you're going on a weight loss journey through a ketogenic diet, that if you're feeling bad whilst going through this, that um, one of the things you need to do maybe is try buying these toxins that are being released as you're, as you're losing weight. And that sounds like you can either 
you know, use whole foods like you mentioned with fiber to, to do the binding or take more omega-3s. Is that an option to also help with this process or even go with a medication route potentially if it's really severe? Exactly. Yeah. So the medication or the fiber is going to help bind those persistent organic pollutants and help you get rid of them. Um, and then the omega-3s are, are vital for reducing the inflammation of the omega-6 that's coming out of your fat cell. Okay. So I'm just thinking of listeners here who may be starting the journey, going through a weight loss journey, or someone who's, who's been on it for a few months now and they've stalled it, but they need they still need to lose a few more pounds. Is your top tip then as you're adopting and you're changing these these fats that it actually is a healthy thing to take to get another source of omega threes? And I my question then would be also is it whole food omega threes or could you even take supplemental omega threes? Yes, that's great. Um, so yes, I do think people should be eating more uh, whole food omega threes, um, like particularly wild salmon, um, shellfish, you know, wild uh, crab, wild lobster. But again, there are these persistent organic pollutants that are getting into those foods and also things like mercury. Um, so I try to limit my wild seafood intake to about twice a week. And on the days I'm not consuming them, I think that I supplement with, with four grams of krill oil and three to four grams of fish oil. And we, we now have a clinical study that was recently, the results were you know announced about a month ago, it was called the REDUCED study, that finally tested a high dose of fish oil in a patient population, either with heart disease or type two diabetes with high triglycerides and one additional cardiovascular risk factor. And four grams of EPA significantly reduced cardiovascular events by 25%. And I had been publishing, Gary, for literally almost a decade telling these guys, you cannot just use one gram of omega-3s in, a, in an American population consuming 20 or 30 grams of omega-6, you have to use at a minimum four grams. And I was so happy that they finally did that study and proved my theory correct that I've been advocating for literally almost a decade. And that you have to get those doses up to four grams because that's the level of omega-3s that have been shown to not only reduce blood pressure, but they're also able to stabilize your own plaque the atherosclerotic, uh, atherosclerotic plaque from destabilizing, um, and also to inhibit platelets. You don't really inhibit platelets unless you have high doses of omega-3s, which is going to prevent the clots, the heart attacks, the strokes from forming in the first place. So yeah, it's great to take maybe one gram of omega-3s if you want to say maybe reduce the risk of an arrhythmia, but if you want to reduce the risk of having a clot and dying from a heart attack or an ischemic stroke, that's not going to happen unless you have about four grams of fish oil on board every single day, which is why I supplement with that on days I'm not consuming wild seafood. And the reason why I do krill oil, especially at a four gram dose, most people will be like, well, say to me, well, krill oil, you know, normally we only see doses of one gram, but the reason why krill oil is, is almost like a whole food source of wild seafood without the harm is because krill are at the bottom of the food chain, so they're not going to really have the persistent organic pollutants, and it's a very highly bioavailable form of what's called astaxanthin. And so for your listeners who might not know what astaxanthin is, it's the carotenoid, um, the antioxidant, so to speak, that the krill get from feeding off microalgae, and it gives the krill, and it gives wild salmon, and it gives shrimp and things like that, their red color. That's what astaxanthin does. It, krill oil provides a very highly bioavailable form of astaxanthin that you cannot get when you consume seafood. And the reason is, is because when you cook seafood, you reduce the, you reduce the amount of astaxanthin by about 50 to 75%. And then the bioavailability of it goes down as well dramatically. So even though wild salmon is high in, is high in astaxanthin, by the time you cook it and eat it and absorb it, you're not getting much of it. So krill oil has a very natural, um, uh, low heat extraction process that doesn't damage the astaxanthin, and the astaxanthin is bound in the phospholipids. And you get about one milligram of astaxanthin per gram of krill oil. So the effective dose of astaxanthin seems to be at least four milligrams. So you can get the four milligrams of astaxanthin by consuming four grams of krill oil. Now, astaxanthin 
even above and beyond krill oil's benefits of burning fat by activating genes that I was talking about, your own fat burning genes and reducing fat storage genes and de novo lipogenesis and things like that, which krill oil does and prevents visceral fat in numerous animal studies, even better than fish oil. Astaxanthin, just given as a supplement, has been literally shown to reduce visceral fat storage in humans. Um, it has numerous benefits, not as just an antioxidant, but actually as an ability improves what's called carnitine palmitoyl transferase one, which helps bring in fats into the mitochondria in your skeletal muscle. So your, your muscles are able to use fat better when they are saturated with, um, astaxanthin. And so astaxanthin has all these benefits of getting into your eyes because it's a fat soluble antioxidant getting into the brain and being preventive to any type of thing that could happen in regards to what's called ischemic reperfusion injury. Most of us are going to probably die from what's called an ischemic event, a clot that literally forms and cuts off blood flow. We, most of the time, if you survive that, a heart attack, about 50% of the people will survive the initial thrombotic event or the clotting off of a blood vessel. What ends up killing the, the rest of those people is when you reperfuse the heart uh, and you basically you get blood flow back to the heart, there's a tremendous release of oxidative stress. So we do this to save people's lives with strokes and heart attacks, but unfortunately in the heart, let's say, when you reperfuse it, you get this dramatic release of oxidative stress from the reperfusion, the oxygen, the blood flow now to the heart, and that ends up causing people to have arrhythmias, and, and, and they end up throwing a ventricular arrhythmia in the hospital uh, you know, a day or two after they have a heart attack. Well, astaxanthin is there in the heart, in the brain, to protect that ischemic reperfusion injury. And so numerous animal studies show that even the, the, um, the size of the infarct, the death of the heart that happens to animals is about 50% less when you give them astaxanthin before you clamp down on a coronary artery and induce a heart attack. And so if you can saturate your body with astaxanthin using krill oil, what I'm trying to say is, is you can prevent oxidative damage and thrombotic damage. And so it's very important to have high concentrations of that. That's fascinating. So, I mean, so many people are always thinking about how do I prevent a cardiovascular event, you know, um, like that, like a heart attack or a stroke. And your top tip there is saying that krill oil sounds fantastic, you know, from astaxanthin to the to the benefits of the, the fats themselves. But it, it sounds to me, again, I haven't heard anyone discussing this, that Maybe if you're on a ketogenic diet um, and you have potentially even some cardiovascular concerns, that supplementing with uh, krill oil, it would be very beneficial for you. Yeah. And I, there might be some skeptics out there saying, well, you know, carotenoids didn't work with beta carotene, right? Like there's been studies that show that, oh, the antioxidant theory is dead, you know, because we've tested beta carotene and we know that it doesn't work for preventing heart attacks and we know that it increases the risk of lung cancer. Um, but the carotene carotenoids, which are beta carotene, alpha carotene, and lycopene, are different than the xanthophyll carotenoids. Astaxanthin is, is called a xanthophyll carotenoid. And the difference is how they fit in the cell membrane. So you think of the cell membrane as this lipid bilayer, okay? You have these polar heads on the top here that face the extracellular space, and you have these polar heads or phospholipids that face the cytosol. And then you have the fatty tails, two sets of fatty tails that face the, the basically the inside of the cell. Beta carotene sits like this, okay? It's a nonpolar. It doesn't have the polar heads or the hydrophilic heads to sit and go parallel with the fatty acids. It breaks up the fatty acid tails and destabilizes the cell membrane. Now, it can help prevent the cholesterol and things like, and the fatty acids from oxidizing, but it also disrupts the fatty acid tails. And it doesn't prevent damage from the outside of the cell or damage happening on the inside. Astaxanthin spans the entire cell membrane because it has two rings that are water-loving. And so the first ring is an, is an antioxidant ring. It's got a ketone group on it. And the second one, too, spans all the way to the very bottom of the cell membrane. And so astaxanthin is not only protecting you, the fats and the cholesterol in your cell membrane, um, from being damaged and in the mitochondrial membrane, but it's preventing the oxidative stress from the outside because it sits on the outside and also the inside. Beta carotene and the carotene carotenoids do not do that. And the other thing is, is, is astaxanthin does not form a pro-oxidant. 
So the reason why beta carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E, and certain trials don't show benefit is when they scavenge a free radical and they give up a hydrogen to basically quelch that free radical, they form a pro-oxidant themselves, not astaxanthin. Astaxanthin has a conjugated double bond um, 19 basically carbon structure where every other bond is a double bond and it can keep accepting free radicals up to 19, never forms a pro-oxidant. So I want people to understand the antioxidant theory isn't dead that, you know, astaxanthin, just because it's a carotenoid, it's, it's not the same as the carotene carotenoid. It is completely different. And the antioxidant theory of heart disease really isn't dead. They just tested the wrong antioxidant. Yeah, it's, uh, I love that. So when you were also mentioning uh, about the four grams, because, yeah, when I, I've got a fish oil supplement or a krill oil supplement, yeah, four grams is not even on the recommended dosage on the bottle there. So you're going way beyond what's recommended on the, the bottle itself to get the clinical benefit then. Exactly. And um, when I say four grams of fish oil, th- it, that really means four grams of EPA and DHA. Anywhere from really three and a half to four grams is the ideal target if you want if you want to lower blood pressure, if you want to stabilize plaque. Um, and when you think about it, it was interesting when I was researching for the book, I was like, how the heck did we get marine omega-3s when we evolved you know, in the center of Africa, let's say, like, where were we getting these omega-3s? If they're so important, you, you think we would have an adequate source of them. Well, there was a source that really only humans could access, and that was animal brain. Um, only hyenas have a strong enough jaw to crack the skull of an animal. So no other, basically, besides hyenas, we were the only ones that could scavenge, crack open the brains of animals. And a brain is more concentrated in DHA than salmon. It's 30% more concentrated. And so there have been studies that have found sites of our ancient ancestors in Africa over 2 million years ago, where we are literally surrounded by cracked open skulls. And so we were getting anywhere from, if you just consume four ounces of brain when we, during our paleolithic times, you were getting about 1.5 grams of DHA. Um, and we were also much better at converting ALA to these long chain omega-3s. Um, we kind of lost that ability as we exited out of Africa via coastal line because we had so much access to seafood. We no longer really needed to co- be so good at converting plant sources to marine sources. So I, the reason, again, back to your point of why I recommend the four grams, which is a very high dose of krill oil, why I take that dose is because not only are you going to be able to hit the minimal effective dose of astaxanthin, which is four milligrams, but you're also getting good amounts of choline when you hit those doses. So we're, you and I are supposed to be getting at a minimum 550 milligrams of choline per day. They, uh, you know, they finally actually put out an adequate intake of choline just like a year ago. We never used to have like a recommended intake. Um, and adult males are supposed to get 550 milligrams. Well, we're falling 200 milligrams short of that every day. And you can bet that recommended amount is not an optimal amount. That is like just your probably ability to stay, you know, um, adequate amount, you know, it's not optimal amount. And if we're 200 milligrams below that, how do you get an extra 200 milligrams of choline? Well, you can get about 50 to 75 milligrams of choline per gram of krill oil. So it's a great way to get a very bioavailable form of choline, which this choline is phosphatidylcholine. So it's bound to the phospholipids and it's much more, much better absorbed than say, just like a choline supplement that's not bound to phospholipids. It's like a real whole food type of choline that you're getting. So that's another reason why I like to consume higher doses because you get good amounts of choline as well from the krill oil. Mm-hmm. And But I, I remember with fish oil, sometimes there's a concern if you're on a blood thinner um, that it could enhance the thinning of your blood. That, that is the case still, is it? Well, if if you look at some of the review papers published by what who I call the the cod father, um, his name's Bill Harris. He's published hundreds of papers on omega threes. He's done a, a you know a fantastic review of the literature, and he shows that even if you're on high doses of omega threes, even combined with antiplatelets, there's no significant increase in significant clinically relevant bleeds. You may have slightly increase in nosebleeds, but he his his reviews of the literature show there's really no significant bleeds that are increased. Um, because it's a, it's a natural type of blood thinner. It's not over thinning your blood. It's kind of doing it in the natural right way. Um, so while there is a risk of maybe more minor bleeds, 
um, there doesn't appear to be any really real big risk for clinically significant bleeds. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, again, people who may have a cardiovascular disease are listening to this and they want to try to get healthy and see if they can try to reduce some of their chronic medications or, you know, just get their, their, their blood vessels healthy again and they hear, oh, I should take omega-3s, but then they're thinking, but if I take omega-3s, it makes my blood too thin and then that's already a, a problem. But as you said, actually, even those people could consider taking omega-3s. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't give them dietary advice, but what I can say is that the studies do not show any real increase in clinically significant bleeds. Mm. So, of course, they should talk to their doctor because, you know, everyone's different. But, um, again, it's a natural substance, and the body seems to actually upregulate certain other effects to prevent you from overbleeding when you consume fish oil. Again, our evolutionary intake was so high, our body just simply knows what to do with these oils. It's not stupid. It's not going to cause you to just bleed out when you eat them because we have been consuming high amounts for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And actually, I have a nice table in Superfuel that shows that we used to get up to 14 grams of those long chain omega-3. So when people even think of four grams as being a lot, it's not really a lot when you look either from an evolutionary perspective or if you look at some of the longest lived populations like Japan um, Korea, who have omega-3 indexes of 12, 13%, they're getting, you know, eight grams of EPA and DHA per day through their diet. And they have the lowest risk of, you know, dying from heart disease and things like that. So the omega-3 index is actually a really important thing that pe a lot of people should go out and probably test themselves because you won't believe how deficient you are. Um, because our background intake of omega-6 is so high that even four grams in certain people won't even get them to six or 7% on an omega-3 index. And what the studies show is the optimal omega-3 index is 8% or higher, which reduces your risk of dying from sudden cardiac death by about 90% versus the average omega-3 index in the United States, which is only 4%. And is that, so that's a blood test that you can go see what your personal ratios are. Exactly. It's a, it's a test of your red blood cell long chain omega-3 content. So EPA and DHA, they me measure in the red blood cell and they see how much of a percentage those fats are compared to, you know, the total fats. And the optimal amount seems to be, well, if you look at Japan and even if you look at a clinical study, which tested a Japanese population who already had a baseline omega-3 index of 10%, they gave them an additional 1.8 grams of EPA probably boosting their omega-3 index up to 12 or 13%, significantly reduced cardiovascular events. So it seems to be safe and probably even optimal up to maybe an omega-3 index of 13%, but at a minimum, 8% seems to be the optimal amount to protect people from sudden cardiac death. Okay. And if someone didn't want to supplement, uh, I'm going to move on to also grass-fed animals. I know we're, we're talking a lot of, about uh, fish oils, but I'm interested too, if someone didn't want to go the krill oil route, could they just eat lots of seafood and try to get the same effect? Or again, you've got those environmental toxins, which are the issue there. That's it. Exactly. That's kind of the, the crux. So use wild seafood smart. Use it once to twice a day is kind of what I do. Um, and then the days that I'm not, I'm supplementing with krill oil to get, again, that high bioavailable astaxanthin, which you really aren't getting through cooked seafood. Um, and you're getting incredible amounts of choline as well. And you're not getting the persistent organic pollutants. So it's a way to boost your omega-3 levels and astaxanthin levels safely rather than constantly every single day consuming, you know, contaminated wild seafood. And then just quickly, also fish oils and the concern of toxicity or oxidization when it comes to like cod liver oil, other types of fish oils, um, is yeah. that, that's a real concern? Um, it, it is. It is. Uh, about 50% of the fish oils on the market have problems with oxidation. Um, so kind of some of the tips that you want to look for um, around a fish oil would be number one, that, it's, that it is sourced from a wild uh, source rather than a farm source. It's going to have much more higher content of omega-3s. Um, where it's sourced matters. So usually you want a fish oil from Alaska or Canadian waters, which are just cleaner than, other water, than a lot of other waters. Um, the third thing is a lot of quality fish oils will test the oxidation products and they will give you a certificate of the amount of lipid peroxidation products in the fish oil. You want that to be less than 5%. Um, 
I take life extension fish oil. I mean, I don't get any type of kickback from them. I just do it because they, they, again, it's wild. It's sourced from a healthy area. Uh, it has the, the tests that show low per, lipid peroxidation. It, it contains a dark capsule to prevent the fish oil from oxidizing and they infuse it with olive oil, uh, olive leaf extract and sesame lignans to prevent the fish oil from oxidizing, not only in the capsule, but in the stomach acid, um, of your own body. And so that's the, that's just the one that I use. So that's another tip. And then I store my fish oil in the freezer. And a lot of people go, wait a second, you store fish oil in the freezer. Hmm. Well, a high quality fish oil will not freeze. And because those omega-3s prevent the cell membranes of cold water fish from freezing because they're so basically saturated and polyunsaturated fats, that they're so fluid that they will not freeze in the freezer. And the freezer prevents the fish oil from oxidizing as well. So I keep my fish oil in the freezer and I keep my krill oil in the refrigerator. I love the, these actionable tips. Thank you so much for showing those. Um, so I want to get on to more people who aren't maybe um, interested so much in the seafood side of things, but they'll be interested in take, getting more healthy fats from eggs and grass-fed animals or animal, uh, you know, beef, pork, lamb, that kind of stuff. If we could just touch on eggs, do you, do you have any views on the, you know, the, the sources of fat that comes from different types of eggs? Yeah, I, I love pastured eggs. I, I hate farm factory eggs. So I kind of consider a farm factory egg um, an omega-6 fat bomb that's about to go off in your, in your artery um, because it is much higher in omega-6. It doesn't have the carotenoids, the, the vitamins um, that pastured eggs have. And when you cook those eggs, you're oxidizing the cholesterol and the omega-6 fat in the yolk. And so when I cook even a pastured egg, I only ever cook it on either over easy. Rarely will I ever cook it over medium. Um, but the pastured egg, again, has those what are called xanthophyll carotenoids. It has something called zeaxanthin, which is a very healthy, beneficial carotenoid that helps with eye health. Um, and so pastured eggs are honestly one of my favorite foods. Um, if you you know, cook it properly and you don't oxidize the cholesterol and the omega-6, you're getting, I mean, omega-6 isn't, isn't bad per se, if it's coming from real foods that have the vitamins like vitamin E, which is going to be found in a pastured egg, um, that prevent it from oxidizing. Um, and so, you know, I, I think two to three pastured eggs a day is a great way to get some choline. It's a great way to get healthy fats and protein. Um, and it's something that I just, I, I absolutely think is, is beneficial to integrate. And what I will use, I will use one piece of Ezekiel toast to bind any type of persistent organic pollutants in the actual egg yolk. Um, so it's kind of using that to prevent any type of issues with those pollutants. Yeah, because when you were talking about with adult males that we need more choline, I was thinking the same thing along with yeah. you could use eggs as another source to get more choline. Um, For sure. And, you know, you're going to have some people who want say that maybe are raw eggs better than cooked eggs. So actually just, you know, like a bodybuilder, just crack those eggs straight in, um, have it that way. Is that maybe the most optimal way of getting eggs? Yeah, I mean, it's such a balance, right? Because there's, even with milk, is there some probably advantages to drinking raw milk versus pasteurized milk where the heat denatures the enzymes and proteins? I mean, animal studies show that raw milk seems to produce a healthier animal versus pasteurized milk. And probably maybe the same thing would happen with raw eggs versus cooked eggs. Um, the, of course, you have to worry about the potential contamination issue when you consume a raw egg, um, which may be dramatically over-exaggerated. Um, but that's why I, I, I do cook it, but I don't overcook it um, for the fact that I want to prevent any type of issues with E. coli, but I also don't want to over-oxidize the fats in the cholesterol. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of those French dishes where you'll have like a blue blue steak, but in this case, drown it in some olive oil and then put the the raw egg on top or something. <laughs> yeah, get... I do. I do think that the the raw egg um, scare is is a lot bigger than what people really. Um, it's a lot bigger than what it really is. I don't think there's a tremendous risk of con of getting contaminated from eating a raw egg. Um, compared to what a lot of people think that elevated risk is. Like, I think most people say, if I eat this raw egg, I'm going to get sick. And I think the actual reality is it's not, not so much. Mm -hmm. I, I can't recommend people eat raw eggs simply from the fact that I don't want to get sued. <laughs> but um, I think the risk and the scare is definitely overemphasized. 
And so moving on to beef, pork, lamb, um, and the difference between grass-fed animals and maybe factory-farmed animals in this case too, does, does that influence the quality of the fat on those animals? So when we want a nice um, fatty piece of steak, there is a benefit to having a grass-fed animal because the fat on the animal is going to be healthier. Exactly. So the cow is going to be not grain-finished, so it's not consuming these very refined grains that are high in omega-6, which even just a few months of eating those grains will dramatically increase um, the omega-6 content and really mainly reduce the omega-3 content. And then the antioxidants, in the carotenoids, um, like beta carotene, which is with, which pastured cows are going to be getting through the grass, they're going to be getting vitamin E and conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, which has anti, potential anti-cancer benefits, that those things get into the pastured fat um, from a pastured cow. Whereas if you're, you know, consuming um, farm factory meat, they aren't, the fat isn't going to appear that nice uh, yellow orangish color from the beta carotene that um, the fat from a pasture animal would have. And so the marbling on a factory farm meat is going to be pure white. You're not going to have the carotenoids and the benefits in that fat. So there is not just a change in the, I think the omega-3, omega-6 issue is, isn't the big issue when it comes to eating pasture meat versus factory farm meat or grain fed meat. The main issue is the dramatic tenfold reduction in the precursors of vitamin E in the conjugated linoleic acid or CLA, which is dramatically reduced, and in the reduction in beta carotene and things like that. I think that's the main issue versus just the slightly higher levels of omega-3s that you're going to get in the pastured meat. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking too, you're going to have some people who are on a different budget and they may say, hey, look, I can't afford yeah. you know, the grass-fed meats, um, but right. ho- hopefully I'm still getting some better fats you know, from the animal fats versus vegetable oils in that case, which it sounds like they are, but potentially they, if they want to top up with some more healthy fats, like just try invest some money maybe in good eggs could be another source yeah. to put with it. To combine, I do think I think the more um, relevant recommendation, like you said, for, especially for people on a budget, would be go for pastured eggs. And if you can't afford pastured meat, you can you can build up your antioxidant levels with consuming things like krill oil rather than every day spending maybe three or four dollars more on your pastured meat. Um, maybe there's different easier ways, like like pastured eggs. Um, to get more of those antioxidants and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wanted to read you a quote that I was reading because I was trying to do a little bit of research on the, the science behind fat causing diabetes or insulin resistance. Um, I didn't, you know, we're, we're talking about fats being healthy for us. And I just wanted to maybe get your view on that because uh, this is from a, a popular vegan doctor. Uh, I won't mention his name right now, but on on one of his pages there, he says, one hit of fat can start causing insulin resistance, inhibiting blood sugar uptake for after just 160 minutes. So, you know, you're going to have some people who maybe have that where people come to to them and say, hey, you're eating all this fat, you're going to cause insulin resistance and create diabetes. Do you think that's that's a real concern? No. Um, Again, everything's so nuanced. I think one of the main factors, um, again, let's, let's talk about um, what actually raises the saturated fats in your blood. So a lot, of, a lot of the vegan and vegetarian doctors, they demonize saturated fat because saturated fat in the body does activate toll-like receptors, which activates inflammation. Um, and, and they're demonizing exogenous saturated fat when it's refined carbs that are the main drivers of the saturated fats in your body. It's not really the exogenous saturated fat to somewhat of a degree. It's mainly the refined carbs that are tripling the saturated fats in the blood, which saturated fats in the body, again, they do activate toll-like receptors and they are damaging. But again, the, the, those are raised mainly by refined carbs. Um, so that, that is where I think a lot of us, a lot of the vegans and vegetarians are using endogenous saturated fat evidence and data to demonize exogenous saturated fats if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other issue, I think that is a very overlooked issue that, that's really damaging and driving a lot of this inflammation in our body 
is bacterial endotoxin. Um, basically, the fats that you eat control the bacteria, the types of bacteria, and that actually produce bacterial endotoxin. And so studies have shown that omega-3s promote a bacteria in your gut that produces less lipopolysaccharide, LPS, or bacterial endotoxin. And omega-6 actually produces bacteria and helps grow the bacteria that secrete that, endo, uh, that bacterial endotoxin. Um, and so the fats can literally change your microbiota and change the endotoxin that's secreted from them, which is kind of interesting. And so not only are the metabolites of omega-3 anti-inflammatory and the, uh, most of the metabolites of omega-6 pro-inflammatory, but you can create a pro-inflammatory bacterial microbiota by feeding them omega-6 versus omega-3. Um, and so I think it's interesting that LPS and the release of this bacterial endotoxin out of the intestine where it's supposed to be kept and hitting things like the liver and hitting the systemic circulation is driving a lot of the inflammation that a lot of people have no idea where is this coming from. Well, it's coming from the food you're eating, altering not only the intestinal barrier causing LPS to leak out, but also altering the, your own microbiota producing LPS. So I, again, the omega-3s win versus the omega-6s on that aspect. And that ties into a little bit where I had a previous guest, um, Amy Pro, who was talking about the microbiome and saying, we only think of it in the gut, but it's actually everywhere. It's in our joints, it's in our brain, it's actually, and I, it, that just gets me thinking that, yeah, how much our diet could influence the microbiome in all these other areas of our body, and who knows what's going on when these bacteria are fed these wrong signals but these omega-6 signals and why maybe you're getting brain fog or something by what you're eating in that case. It's, yeah, lots of spin-offs from that one. Um, yep. So if someone listening wants to stay more vegan or vegetarian for keto, how would they get the best, healthiest sources of fat in that case? Yeah, I mean, first off, I will say that unless you really know what you're doing, Vegan diets can be extremely dangerous um, simply because you are, are eliminating certain food groups that are providing certain nutrients that are very difficult to get um, unless you really know what you're doing. So, for example, vegans can get B12 in their diet. Most people don't know this, but they can get it by consuming chlorella. Um, but unless you're a really smart vegan, not a lot of people really know that. I mean, so unless you're supplementing with B12, which I still don't think is as good as getting it through the diet, I would never recommend really a vegan diet unless you are unless you are an expert at it because you're also not getting things like carnitine, you're not getting things like, you know, vitamin A, vitamin K, K2. Um, so again, ugh, I can't even I don't even want to go and touch on that topic because, you know, it's it can lead to a lot of damage. I mean, literally babies are dying being put on these vegan diets. So it's like, you know, I, I want to put a cautionary warning out there that unless you are really, you know, being followed by a doctor who knows what they're doing, I would never promote uh, veganism. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I, I could see how a vegan doctor who really does know what they're doing would be like, well, this guy's crazy. Because, but, but I mean, honestly, I don't really know how many vegan diets or vegan doctors really are experts at knowing how to supplement everything that's going to be missing in the diet. And so for that reason, um, I, I would never, um, you know, recommend it. But if, if people want to get more of a vegetarian type of ketogenic diet, like what sources of foods can they consume again, would be the nuts, almonds, um, walnuts, seeds like chia, um, flax is one of your highest omega-3 seeds, um, and hemp hearts. Hemp hearts are very high in omega-3s as well. They have more protein than chia and flax. Um, and all three bring a lot of vitamins and minerals, but a lot of people, some people don't tolerate seeds. Fine. If you don't tolerate seeds, go to nuts. If you don't tolerate nuts, maybe you can eat more greens. Um, if you don't tolerate greens, um, you know, you're starting, you're slowly starting. I mean, there's, there's different spectrums, right? There's people who are on carnivore simply because they have tried every single type of plant food and they can't tolerate it. And then there's other people who can tolerate more plant food. So it, oh, it comes down to listening to your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was just thinking what you were touching on earlier where I can imagine someone who's more vegetarian or vegan uh, keto 
but they could be over-consuming the cold-pressed oils, and that's actually a problem there. So they they need to try really focus on whole food, fatty um, vegetable products, even avocados or and nuts and seeds. Then it sounds like is where they'd have to live, trying to consume most of that to try and get their omega three six ratio better and get get better sources of fat. Yeah, exactly. And they they can get their marine omega threes from like an, an algae oil. Um, rather than obviously their vegan isn't going to you know consume a fish oil. So okay, fantastic. Well, James, um, thank you so much for all the knowledge bombs. I mean, we went really in depth. We came out. We gave lots of actionable tips. I, every time I speak to you, I love it. I mean, you changed my life with the Salt Fix book too. I just I love salt on everything now. And you know, all the responses I got from that were fantastic. And I'm sure we're going to get the same thing from this interview where people are just going to love all the little extra things that you've just shared that no one else is talking about when it comes to the ketogenic diet. So thank you so much for sharing those. But if um, anyone wants to keep in touch with you or even get onto the pre-order list for your book that's coming out, um, where's the best places for them to do that? Yeah, so people can pre-order Superfuel um, on Amazon is the best way to do it. Um, it comes out November 13th. Um, and then they, they can follow me. I started my own YouTube channel. So you know I'm going to be start uploading a lot of videos to go into some of these kind of nuances that I only get to share with you every now and then. And so um, they can follow me on my YouTube channel or they can follow me on social media at my Dr. James Dinical Antonio Facebook. You can't follow me on my personal page, um, unfortunately, or on Twitter or Instagram at Dr. James Dinick. Great. And I'll put all of those in the show notes for listeners. But again, thank you so much for coming on for today. Thanks for having me, Gary. Uh 